This is Lives, and I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. My guest today is Jacob Dahlke, a clinical ethicist and the director of the Office of Healthcare Ethics at Nebraska Medicine. In today's show, Jacob Dahlke talks about ethics and how they are applied in a healthcare setting, especially in the context of the pandemic and the moral injury and trauma suffered by healthcare workers and himself. Jacob also talks about his own life as an art teacher and his journey towards clinical ethics, his endeavors to experience the now and move towards a form of personal enlightenment. And Jacob shares his advice for facing difficult choices and dilemmas. My guest today is Jacob Dahlke. Jacob is returning to the show as a guest. Our previous conversation took place during season two of Lives, just as the pandemic was accelerating in March 2020. Jacob is a graduate of the bioethics program at Union Graduate College, Mount Sinai School of Medicine. He has contributed to the medical ethics field in Vermont, Colorado, and at Creighton University's Center for Health Policy and Ethics, and is a part of the first cohort of nationally credentialed bioethicists through the American Society for Bioethics and Humanities. Jacob's primary interests in bioethics include advanced care planning, the intersection of systemic racism and bioethics, and healthcare professional wellness as it relates to moral distress and moral injury. Jacob Dalkey, welcome to Lives. Thank you. It's, it's great to be back. Ethics. It, it, it can perhaps for the non-professional uh, seem like an opaque or perhaps a commonly misunderstood term. So perhaps we could just start with a brief discussion about, you, you know, what are ethics and is there a sort of a simple practical way to understand it? Yeah, I think when I think about ethics, I think of a, a systematic standardized way of resolving problems or resolving dilemmas. And so in my field in medical ethics, that uh, relates to dilemmas or problems in healthcare. And so when we are, um, when we find ourselves in a, in, in a situation in which maybe uh, we don't know what the best option is, or maybe we know what the best option is for a patient, but are somehow prevented from getting there, whatever barriers happen to be in place, whether they're real barriers or perceived barriers, um, how do we come to a resolution that is equitable and fair and satisfactory for the people who are involved? And so that could, that could include uh, sometimes the dilemma is with a single individual. Sometimes it's just a question that a physician has, for example. Um, sometimes it's just a question that the patient has. Sometimes there's an active conflict or disagreement um, among many people, and, and, and things can seem really, really complicated, uh, deeply complicated. And, and so the, then the question is, how do we get ourselves out of that? One example is about choice. Who gets to choose? I remember those cases about um, patients who uh, perhaps are not of an age to make informed choices for themselves, but perhaps their situation medically was um, fraught. The family context, religious or other cultural beliefs, was, was different than what would have been a standard medical response to that situation. Mm-hmm. And so the issue of who gets to choose what is the right response to a clear medical situation when those are in tension. Yeah. Yeah. That, that speaks really to, to one of the primary principles that we have in medical ethics, which is patient autonomy, right? Which is, which is not really all that radical. It's, it's the concept that 
you can't do something to someone's body without their permission, right? That certainly applies well beyond healthcare. Um, and in the, in the healthcare context, we rely on that individual's ability to make their own decisions. And that's sort of a nuance that we find in healthcare sometimes is sometimes people are so sick that they can't make their own decisions. And so we talk about capacity. Do you have the capacity to make that decision for yourself? And so when patients have the capacity to make their own decisions, we of course defer to them for what is it that you want for yourself, for your body. But it gets really interesting when we talk about kids, right? Because that is something that we understand. Capacity is something that we understand uh, is something that emerges over time, right? And there's, there are legal thresholds, right? So the day that you turn 18, surprise, guess what? Congratulations, you have it all, right? Or, or the age of 19 here in Nebraska. It, and it's a light switch, right? It's on or it's off. But capacity uh, in, in terms of medical decision-making is kind of a dimmer switch, right? It, it emerges over time and, and it's, it's a pretty fuzzy time. We know that a five-year-old has very little to no capacity and we can anticipate that most uh, 17-year-old and 364-day-old uh, teenagers have probably full capacity to make their own medical decisions. But when does that, that switch? And, and uh, it, it can get pretty tricky sometimes. It's something that we, we acknowledge. Adolescence is kind of that complicated time where things are emerging and, and cognitively they're developing to, to be able to consider those decisions. But it, it certainly adds a layer of complexity in healthcare. So let's get straight into the pandemic then. We spoke in March of 2020 just as the country was beginning to sort of lock down and really feel the implications of what this could mean and a time of great uncertainty. What was happening with your role and in your institution around that time and, and how did that begin to unfold over the following few months? Yeah, that I, I to be honest, I haven't thought about that time very much um, because it keeps changing, right? Things, things continue to develop. Um, you mentioned uncertainty. I think that was probably one of the overarching themes at that time. Um, you know, this novel coronavirus that everyone was talking about. It, it, was, um, it, was, it was scary because we, we were faced with something that we didn't know about. And, and uh, science and by default healthcare is guided by what we know about a situation and based on that we can we can develop plans and and it was it was hard to to keep up with the progression of the d disease and the progression of the pandemic with how little we knew about it i i think I'm, I'm speaking on behalf of the entire healthcare community but i think we felt like we were playing catch up a lot and that's not a place that healthcare professionals like to be and so i think that was really nerve-wracking people were just so sick I mean, we, we had no therapies. We, we didn't even know what to treat or how to treat. And it was manifesting itself in so many different ways. And people were just so sick. I, I think that's really what, what got people nervous is, is as we're thinking about as a pandemic develops and the statistics and the public health epidemiology behind it all, it was very, very uh, nerve wracking for people. What was your role and how were you prepared and not prepared to... Yeah you know, look at what was happening with the pandemic? Yeah, I think um, as, a, as a clinical ethicist, um, 
my role was to, I think, help facilitate conversations uh, when it came time to make organizational decisions. Now, I certainly wasn't any authority in, in making those decisions, but, um, but being present in those conversations to, to help um, ensure that, that how we go about taking care of our patients in as much as we can is consistent with how it was before, right? Are we treating our patients fairly and equitably? Are we, are we promoting the values that we as a healthcare organization, but just even uh, healthcare universally, are we upholding those principles that, that the public expects of us and, and some of those difficult decisions that we were considering had to reprioritize how we thought about even medical ethics, right? We, we, I, I talked about patient autonomy. There's sort of these four principles of, of medical ethics of autonomy and, and justice, this public good. And then the, the balancing of, of benefits and harms, right? Uh, we refer to them very technically as beneficence and non-maleficence, right? But, but really it's, it's how do you, how, how do you weigh the benefits and the harms? And so we tend in, in clinical care, we defer to the patient. I was just talking about that, right? About the individual and, and what you need as a patient, we will do what we can do to get for you because that's what you need as an individual patient in this setting. And as we started considering resource allocation um, and, and the potential for certain resources to become scarce when they previously weren't, you know, we, we, we have mechanisms in place uh, for scarce resources. Organ transplantation is a great example. We never have enough of those. And so there's mechanisms in place to, to manage that scarce resource. But we have not had to consider um, what happens if we run out of ventilators, right? Or what happens if we run out of beds? There are, there are physically not enough, there's physically not enough space to take all of the people that are sick that need our help. So patient autonomy, which previously or, or classically would be considered pretty important and perhaps even primary, all of a sudden it simply can't. It's not because we're choosing that we're not going to honor patient autonomy. That, that's just no longer a factor because if everybody got what they wanted, they'd get it. But that's not physically possible. So, so helping to sort of navigate those conversations, I think, was my role primarily of in this new, in this new reality in this new situation, how do we make those decisions in a, in a way that balances all of those ethical principles as an organization? Systems writ large across the country and, and yours too have, uh, as it were, playbooks for other kinds of outbreaks, like um, what do you do for flu outbreaks? And I, I think there's a cycle to this, maybe a 10-year cycle to mm -hmm. this. There were some tools and resources that you as an ethicist and also the organization could turn to, to try to navigate what was a, a constantly changing and constantly uncertain period at the beginning yeah. there. We were incredibly fortunate um, because we had just sort of wrapped up uh, our 10 year review of our influenza pandemic playbook, as it were. Th that happened at the end of 2019 and, and, and very early on in uh, 2020 is when we were wrapping it up. And so, so once this came out, we, we had a fresh off the printers um, draft. Now, obviously things were different. We had to, we had to modify it, but the framework was there and, and we didn't have to do, um, we didn't have to start from zero. We, we had a pretty good framework to, to begin with, um, but then we had to, to tailor it 
to, to the needs, um, of, of this pandemic. And, and we didn't, again, at that very beginning, we didn't know what to change. We knew things needed to change with our framework, but, um, that, that, that was a challenge. The pandemic, we, we might've thought at the beginning, well, we didn't really know what to think, but you know, in 2020, there was a sense that maybe this will blow over fairly quickly. And then it became clear fairly quickly that that was not going to be the case. And we were in this for quite a long period of time and it's turned out to be more than two years now. So how did setting up an, an ethical approach to the needs that were presenting themselves, how did that conversation shift over that period of time? As we gained more and more information, um, it became clearer how we would best approach this. But I think there was, for me at least, there was, there was always a limitation because we had to recognize how much of a global community we actually are. Because despite what we were doing in Omaha, Nebraska, we were impacted by what was going on in New Zealand and South Korea. I don't want to say that it was overwhelming, but that was a constant, for me in my own head, that was a constant challenge to reconcile that and say, uh, because it's easy to, to just sort of throw up your hands and give up and say, well, if, if they're not going to listen or if they're not going to do what we think is appropriate over in that place over there, then why would we bother? But um, I, I think there's a, there's a commitment to do good right in front of us. And, and despite the, the challenges, we were obligated to do that. And, and it was just a lingering factor in all of it was, was we're, we're really fighting a, a global battle here. And, and that was, that was tough. As we think on this show about questions like, you know, how do we live well and what does a good life look like and what could it mean? How might we be connected? I think you're touching on some of those questions and healthcare of course is front and center when we think about that in, in really practical and immediate terms. So you're working at a healthcare institution that has patients, but also healthcare professionals, also members of the public because it's a community institution. And so I'm thinking about all these different types of stakeholders that you have to consider. It's not as if you're a clinical ethicist for the administration of a hospital right. or for just doctors or just patients, there's a whole gamut. How did you see different needs present themselves from a moral and an ethical perspective amongst these different groups? It was hard. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was really hard, um, you know, because classically speaking, the, the patient-physician relationship is, is fairly well established, right? But it's not just that anymore, right? When we say physician, what we really mean is the 35 people around that physician as well, the, the medical team. The, the, there's, it's so complicated now. And each one of them, first and foremost as humans, brings with them their own values and morals and, and narrative, as it were. Um, but they also have another layer of this professional obligation and this professional duty. And, and while they're all in healthcare, um, each one is unique, right? Each one is different and, and, and there can be some, some nuance and there can be some tension between those two, uh, professional codes of ethics, for example. I, I think for me, my, my role was, um, when I walked in the room, for example, it wasn't to presume that a certain priority or, or list or ranking, 
uh, was going to be that way, that it needed to stay that way, that, that autonomy has to be first here. I think it was constantly a reshuffling and retinkering with that, that prioritization. Um, because depending on who I'm talking to, their list is different, you know, and, and, and we likely share some, some common, uh, values and, and factors like that but they might be prioritized differently depending on the day, depending on the person, depending on the, the profession that we're talking about. So, so just being able to, to recognize before the fact that that is a component for me of, of, of what is important here, what is needed here, I think was, was helpful. Are there some moments, some experiences, some dilemmas that as you look back over the last few years that, stand out to you, um, either because they were particularly challenging or because there was a, a particular pathway or success story? Some of the strongest memories I think I have are, are from early on in, in January and February. Um, we were meeting in a very, very large auditorium and there was 200 people in the room, all leaders across the, the organization discussing, right? Like what's the newest news out of China and out of Southeast Asia and now Europe and, and just sort of tracking it in slow time or in, in real time rather. And, you know, our, our public health experts of which we have some outstanding ones at, at UNMC and Nebraska medicine, um, giving their presentations and just looking at the numbers going, Oh my God what are, what are we going to do? And it was, it was, it was very sobering. Um, I, I will never forget that because we, we would, we'd see the, the numbers on the slides and, and look at each other in the eye and go, are you kidding me? Is that even possible? And, um, I, I think that as sobering as it was, I think it was good preparation for us. And, and I think we, in Nebraska have um, certainly compared to other places have done remarkably well. And, and we didn't have to make the kind of decisions that, that other places did. And I, and I'm incredibly grateful for that. But at the beginning, that was, that was very sobering for me. Um, you know, and I think for us, the conversations around the staffing shortages in, in, in recent months, that those were really hard because despite what happens outside of a hospital, pandemic is still going on in those hospitals and, and it has taken its toll on, on its, uh, workers in very real, uh, significant ways. Um, I was having a conversation even just this morning with a, a group about trauma and, and, and what that means and, and how hard it has been for them to live their lives as, as healthcare professionals and then to go home and to deal with the exact same thing that you're dealing with at work. Um, because you can't, you can't outrun COVID, right? It's everywhere. You can't take a break. You can't go on vacation and just ignore it for a while because wherever you go, it's there. And, and that is just exhausting on healthcare professionals in a way that I, I don't know if it's that way for everyone. I, I think it's acutely there for, for healthcare workers. In your bio, you reference a focus that includes healthcare professional wellness. Yeah especially as it relates to moral distress and yeah. moral injury. And I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing just a little bit more about 
what are the challenges? You know, what, yeah. what are the traumas being faced, and and what moral injury ac- actually means? Yeah, it, it, this is a direct outgrowth of of COVID for me, right? Just at, it, the nature of my job, it it, it has become <laughs> front and center the way in a way that I hadn't expected, you know, five years ago. The way that I like to describe it is is sort of as an analogy to healthcare is like the the game of football, right? Um, it is an inherently violent sport, right? That that's part of what makes football complicated in, in a social setting. I think there's there's the physical aspect of I'm going to try to keep you from getting to that place physically. I'm going to put my body on your body and keep you from getting there. Um, and so there there there's just that violence built into it. You can't have football without violence. It's just a part of the game. And so along with that, it's natural that there are going to be injuries that. Are, you're stressing your body and eventually at some point there's going to be an injury, right? And so then you recover from that injury to the best of your ability and get back in the game. And I like that as a, as an example or as a correlation to healthcare, because I think healthcare is a pretty violent sport too, right? I mean, we, we, we do some radical things to people's bodies and it's also morally and emotionally violent because things are really hard even if we have a good outcome, right? The patient gets discharged home back to their lives. Uh, it has taken a toll on the people because they were at their worst and we were there for them when they were at the worst place that they have ever been in their entire lives. And that that's not without its effects on people, right? So there's that just built-in stress that comes with being a healthcare professional. And there are injuries that go along with it, right? Sometimes the outcome isn't that great or... Uh, the outcome isn't great because of uh, some barrier that we couldn't overcome, right? That we think should be gone. Sometimes people die and sometimes they die in really bad ways. And, and, and those, those are the types of moral injuries that I think healthcare in, uh, professionals endure. And I think what, expo- what was exposed from the pandemic is we don't have a great way of promoting recovery, from that in healthcare. And then the pandemic hit, you know, if we're thinking about this as, as football, uh, we're playing now without pads. So what do you think is going to happen to those, those injuries that are, that are likely to occur? There's going to be more of them, of course. And Oh, by the way, there's no subs. So you can't get out of the game. Healthcare professionals have not been able to turn off for two and a half years. And that is exhausting. And they're hurt. And they can't get out of the game because there's nobody to replace them. So, so that's, I think, the, where we are currently with, um, with healthcare and the state of healthcare and, and moral injuries. They, they are very real. And, and if, if we don't address them, we have what, I, what I'm sort of thinking of as, as a moral scar, right? That's where we have to, we change the way that we behave um, because I, I was not able to, to process what I went through. And now I walk with a limp. And maybe I just leave altogether. I quit the game. And that's not, a, that's not a, I think it's really important to, to highlight too, that is not an individual failing, right? It's not because I wasn't big enough or strong enough or fast enough to play the game. Um, I was playing without pads and I couldn't go out of the game. I couldn't check out of the game. That's, that's not an individual failing. And I, I think we have to do better for, for our healthcare professionals. There's a, there's a lot of trauma that needs to be processed from this.
Is that moral distress compounded then when, if I continue your analogy, and so you have healthcare workers who are being forced to work in a situation where the publics they serve are having um, debates about and arguments about pads, or in this case, we could, for example, just say masks, Mm -hmm. um, or other practices about distancing or otherwise. I'm not making a comment about the validity of that. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about the moral distress that healthcare workers feel like they were encountering. Yeah, I mean, healthcare is is but a slice of our society, right? It, it, it does not exist in a in a vacuum. It's not it's not on its own. It's it's a part of we're a part of every community that we're in, right? So we are impacted by decisions that are made outside of healthcare. Just like I think we have the ability to impact decisions outside of healthcare as well. Like it goes both ways. Um, but I do think yes, there was there was a a lot of frustration around not validating the need to, to have the resources that were needed, particularly early on. I think that really, uh, that really frustrated people. And, and the, tra- the trade-off in maybe some odd sort of way was um, healthcare professionals were attributed to be heroes for, for doing it. You're such a hero for playing the game that you're playing without pads, without adequate equipment. I appreciate the the heroic sentiment, but I'm not sure that that applies. I, I don't think that's heroism. I don't think it should be attributed to be heroism. Um, that was something else. That was that was people um, doing the best that they could in in the times that they had. But it 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 is frustrating to hear people outside of healthcare circles, outside of that area of expertise, weighing in in ways that that directly impact the people that are doing the work. What about you? So you're journeying through this like everybody, but to some degree, part of your role is to support people in conversations around or choices around, frameworks around making dreadful decisions. Mm -hmm. And that's your role. And I can't but believe that that created situations for you when you perhaps went home and threw your arms in the air and were frustrated or um, didn't know where to turn because your role is one where there are no clear answers, only terrible questions to consider. So what about your own moral injury and your own stress? Yeah, that it's, that is, I think that is something I'm only beginning to process. I think like many other healthcare professionals, um, you know, I, and I, I always provide the caveat that I am, I'm, I'm different. <laughs> Maybe that's obvious by now, uh, you know, but, but I don't, I don't take care of patients the way that nurses and uh, physicians and, and everybody on the medical team does. And I think that's appropriate. I think that's relevant. Um, in, in medical ethics, we, we refer to something called critical distance, right? Where I need to be close enough to the situation, but if I roll up my sleeves and dive right in, I'm useless because I'm not a nurse. And I'm not a, you know, so it, 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 I I have to maintain enough distance to maintain a certain perspective to, to be useful to them. Because if I just 
want to be with them and like them, I'm, I'm useless. And so I have to maintain that critical distance. So I think that has insulated me in a certain way from the type of moral injuries that, that others have incurred, which in and of itself is, is stressful for me, right? To, to watch from the sidewalk, watch that accident happen and know that I could see it coming from a half a block away, but I can't intervene because um, that's not, again, that critical distance is, is required. And so that, that has been hard is, is to see the people that I have worked with for years um, suffer in the way that they have and, and work through what they have had to work through. And I haven't had to do that. And so um, I, I think there's a certain guilt that goes along with that, that I, I, I should be, I should be suffering with them, like them, you know, I know that's not true, but, but it feels like it should. And so, so reconciling that has been, um, I think what I'm, what I'm going through today, it, like I said, it's a, it's a fairly recent development because I'm talking more and more with, with them about what they have gone through. Again, I just had a conversation this morning about it. Um, and we did, yeah, we, we talked about the guilt of, you know, is it, is it the same kind of struggles and, and challenges for uh, an oncology nurse to, to go through what they've gone through um, just because I wasn't in the ICU or just because I wasn't on the COVID unit? It's all affected. Everybody, everybody has the role and everybody has their, their consequences to what they've experienced. And, and we, need to, we need to make sure and validate those. You didn't just wake up one day and you know, child didn't say, I'm, I'm going to be a clinical bioethicist. You're one of 10 children. I am. Paint a picture of your childhood, your family, and um, what sort of memories stand out to you from your early years? The, the, the first memory that, that jumps out to me um, is I grew up in uh, my childhood years. We're in southeast Iowa, and we had a huge tree in the backyard. And that was my spaceship. And I, and I, I climbed, uh, that spaceship and I went all over the universe in that, uh, as a kid. Um, and we were out in the country and, and I had to ride my bike everywhere. Um, and being able to, to just sort of explore the world, um, I, I think w- was, was really great to be afforded that as a child, you know, to walk down to the Creek and, and just, just be, um, I, I think that was, it was probably more beneficial than I gave it credit for. Um, I'm a middle child. I'm the fourth, um, which I don't know if you could probably throw the birth order thing out the window when you get to 10. But um, I think I was fairly observant even then. I don't, I don't know if that was a, a function or a consequence of, of where I was in, in, in childhood. And then I think the fact that I'm tall has, has always stuck with me. I'm 6'6". Six, six, and so I... I, I uh, I have a certain view of the world that others don't. And so when you roll all of that together, I, I, I think that's sort of where I, where I landed was, was um, I, I feel like I'm patient enough to take the time to make observations about the world and think about the world in a way that other people don't. Right. I, I think about my, my kitchen at home and I can't think about my kitchen without thinking the top of my refrigerator and how dusty it is guess what? Nobody else sees that. Right. So, so I think that's, that's sort of where I, where I come from. And I think, I think that is a, is a useful trait um, when it comes to bioethics, because sometimes there are, there are challenges in healthcare that, that 
there may be a solution or there may be a path that the people who are so focused on, on being the experts in what they do haven't been afforded the perspective to, to see. And, and so that's my role. I think you told me your parents were educators. Yeah, my father was a, a, a pastor and a teacher um, at various times in, in my childhood. And then uh, my mother was a full-time mother. That was her profession. Were you homeschooled? Yes, for a couple of years. Yeah. And, and I ask this because I know that as a career, as you began sort of in adulthood, moving into a career, you taught art. Mm. Would you mind sharing, yeah. as it were, where art emerged from in your life and, and then what it was that pulled you into art and teaching? I directly ended up in teaching in undergrad. I was pre-med and I, I became a teacher because um, I couldn't get a good enough grade in biochemistry. And so I said, <laughs> I guess medicine isn't for me. And, um, you know, my father was a teacher. So, so I had that as, as sort of a, a, an example of, of what was possible. And, and so it worked out that I, I got an undergrad degree in secondary education and, and shipped off to Seattle with my wife for seven years. And, and we taught there. Um, the art component, it, it has always just been an interest of mine. I, I loved drawing when I was a kid. Um, I did all sorts of different art, um, in high school and college. And when I was teaching in, in Seattle, it was at a very small private school where, uh, certain things are afforded you if you express the interest. Right. And so, uh, there was an opening to, to, um, to teach art and I was teaching biology at the time and I was able to sort of work my schedule where, where I could, um, do both. And, and it was, an experience I'll never forget. I, I, I look back very favorably upon, upon those years. That was, that was a, a really fun time for me to, to help kids see the beauty in the world and see, see the creativity that they had in, in themselves. You know, you, you have that freshman in high school come in and say, I'm a, I'm a bad artist. And I said, that doesn't exist. You know, it, it's about, it's about, can you express yourself in this different way. And if you can, you've done it. That, that makes you a good artist. And so it, it was a terrific time in my life. And so, um, it's, it's been, it's been a journey. How do arts continue to play a role in your life and, and how you think about yourself? Well, I think one of the core tenets of, of art is creativity, right? It, it's the ability to express yourself in a new way. And I, and I think I've, I've kept that with me in medical ethics, right? Because again, I, I just spoke to that of, of the ability to um, find a new solution or, or think of something in a different way. And so while it, while it's not a physical, that the product is not a physical manifestation of that creativity, um, I, I do think that that is, um, that's a way that I can express myself creatively. Um, I, I'm a, a bit of a, a sucker for home remodel projects as well. That's, that's the other, that's the tangible part of this is, um, I, 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 I struggle with doing too many projects, <laughs> but, but, but that, but that again, that, that is that, uh, creative aspect is to see something as it is and to see the potential in it and, and see something different for it. And then to actually execute on that and, and make it um, different. And, and in my opinion, better than it was. I think that that's, that's a real uh, source of satisfaction for me. 
there was arts and you were teaching arts uh, for some period of time. What's the transition? You know, what's that leap from there into ethics as a practice and, you know, know, bioethics in particular? Yeah. I, so I was, um, I was actually teaching some bioethics in my high school classrooms in my, in my science classrooms. Um, There's a great organization, the Northwest Association for Biomedical Research in in Seattle. And um, they had a program at the time that did workshops for teachers to teach teachers how to teach bioethics in their classrooms. And, and so I got um, associated with them and and just got hooked. I I thought this was an incredible way to teach science to kids. Right. You know, I mean, you mean to tell me that I could potentially argue my way and, and justify why I think X ought to be X and everybody else in the room says why. And I mean, how great is that for a high schooler? To, to experience. Right. So I, I was teaching bioethics uh, in my classrooms. And, um, when, when we left Seattle, um, we moved to Colorado. My wife, um, had been accepted to medical school. And so I was staying at home with our oldest child at the time, um, which I, I absolutely loved. Um, a consequence of that was I was used to dealing with emerging adult brains and, and, um, other adults and I was on my own and, and, uh, that, that was a hard, uh, thing to change for my, the cognitive stimulus for me was, was staying at home. I, I loved every moment of it. Um, but that was hard. And so I started looking at maybe grad programs, um, to explore and came across bioethics that, that I could actually get a higher degree in that. And I thought that's outstanding. I want to, I want to do that. And so I jumped into that program and, um, very quickly learned that there's an entire profession, there's an entire full-time job that you could do. And, and once that occurred to me, that, that sort of stuck. Um, and you know, it it was, it was a balance. I wasn't sure if I was going to go back to teaching or, um, maybe go into bioethics as a profession. Um, and, and I'm grateful that, that it worked out this way. You mentioned that your wife was accepted into medical school and that's part of that, um, transition you as a family and professionally and personally. And my understanding is that she is now a physician in a palliative care scenario, yeah. hospice, hospice scenario. Hospice and palliative care, yeah. So for those that aren't completely aware of what that entails, would you mind sharing just a little bit about sure. her work and then we can talk about what that's actually done to change your thinking about the world? Yeah, hospice and palliative care are, are two separate concepts that are often combined together, but, but palliative care is, is a, um, a specialty in medicine that focuses on symptom management. Um, and so the, the, the simplest example I think of, of, of that would be if someone has a, a cancer diagnosis and they're being treated for that cancer, right? Chemotherapy, radiation, surgery, whatever the case may be, they're, they're being treated for that and, and, and trying to be um, treated or cured of that cancer. Palliative care helps to one establish what are we trying to accomplish out of this other than that curative intent, right? Um, how do you want to live your life still? And, and what is it going to take to, to get there? And, and, and how do we manage the symptoms that go along with those treatments? It's not curative. It's, it's helping you achieve the goals that you have in your life as you go about doing these things. And as I'm sure we all know, um, sometimes those therapies are not uh, successful and, and we might come to the end of a road and we, 
as a, as a healthcare system cannot provide the solution to that condition. We cannot provide any more interventions and, and people are then at the end of their lives. And so that's where hospice comes in. It's a, it's a program that helps support people through the ends of their lives and, and does similar things, you know, makes sure that they, with whatever time left they have, which we cannot control anymore, how do you want to live it? And, and can we provide enough symptom management to, to navigate that? So your wife's professional practice and, and the scenarios that she faces and the context in which she works, plus your own work as a clinical ethicist, and we've been talking about the accelerated amplifying situation of the pandemic, it suggests to me that you've encountered a lot of experiences. You shared a lot of experiences in the last several years that ask those big questions such as, you know, how do you want to spend your days? Uh, you have this much time. What do you want to do with it? Have you been asking yourself those questions? And, and if you have, where, where are you landing or what sort of considerations are these questions raising for you? I try. I, I, I try to ask those questions, right? I, I get um, just as distracted as everybody else with the day-to-day. Um, and when I, when I find myself um, at a place to, to ask those questions, I, I, keep, I keep coming back to all I have is right now, what's in front of me right now, and, and trying to recognize the now for what it is and, and to enjoy it. Um, it, actually not even necessarily to enjoy it, just to experience it to the fullest because to enjoy it means that it has to be good and we can't always be happy, you know? And so, so just to simply recognize things for what they are and to experience them as they are, um, that's what I, that's what I'm striving for now. I, I don't do a great job of it just yet. I'm working on that, but, um, but that's my goal, I think, is, is, to, is to be here right now. I'm curious how that actually shows up in your life, just because it's hard for me sitting here with you to imagine not thinking about what was happening last year or five years ago and hard not to think about you know, what's going to be happening in a year's time and then where I'm going to be in five, ten years' time. It's, it's hard, I think, to think about the present moment it's easier if I put down my phone that that's, that's, I know that. Um, I, I, I go back to something I discovered several years ago of, um, recognizing the, the value of change. And, you know, it, it kind of comes from the, the tenets of Zen Buddhism, even of, of recognizing that everything changes. And that, that was really transformative for me. Is, is to recognize that how, how true that is, that um, whatever we're going through, it, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to change, right? And, and maybe all of us in Nebraska are, are Zen Buddhists because we, we talk about the weather. Just give it 10 minutes, it'll change, right? Have you answered, I mean, I know you said you were working on this, but do you have some answers to the question? How do you want to spend your days? No, no answers. I, I, um, I need to stay curious. Once, once I have the, the answers, then I'm going to be I'm pretty confident they'll be wrong. And so I, I need to go back to that. So I, I try not to, and I, I try not to arrive at conclusions. I, I, I remain curious or try to. 
I'm thinking about some of the challenges you faced, but also working with people for whom your role is to support them in making choices mm-hmm. in challenging situations where they're yeah. suffering moral injury, this kind of thing. Um, and I'm wondering how you go about a practice of maybe not healing for yourself, but looking after yourself. Yeah. Well, there's, I think for me, it's, it's a matter of perspective and recognizing that there's a difference between supporting people through their difficult decisions and making difficult decisions for them. And, and I have, I have to draw a very clear line with that. And so my role as a supportive one, again, I think it sort of insulates me from some of that. Um, I, I, I try to remain very committed to, to the close people in my lives. Um, and I, I fail at that on occasion, but, but that's what I, that's what I seek, um, when I need it, that that's, that's the real core strength for me is to be around people that I know and love. I've noted this down, something you shared with me, which is being on a non-spiritual path to enlightenment. (laughs) And I, I wonder what that means and what that looks like. Well, I, I, I've, uh, I'm very interested in this, in the grand unified theory of everything, right? If everything is connected and everything changes, uh, that is a, that's a, that's a beautiful image that I have in my mind. And, and I want to see as much of it as I can. And if I, if I draw a conclusion about one component of that, then, then my focus ends up being sharing that conclusion with other people. And I'm going to miss out on the beauty of everything else that I'm missing. So I think, um, I, I don't know, I don't know how much farther I can get, get than that, you know, of, of what does, what does enlightenment mean? It's, it's about, um, seeing what's in front of us. So I want to end having sent us wide perhaps to a narrower conclusion, which is given all of your experience in life and also your professional practice and success and and difficulties, are there any practical considerations you would leave us with in terms of how we might, as individuals, go about thinking about difficult choices that we're faced with? It's a good question. I think the first thing that comes to mind is um, seek a new perspective. You know, when when you're struggling, um, ask for help. Get get a different perspective from someone else. Um, that that is going to open up your your possibilities just by default. Now, you, it doesn't mean you have to follow it, right? But it but it provides you a better um, perspective or a broader perspective. Um, something I found myself, um, describing to, to other people in, in the conversations I've been having with, with a lot of colleagues of mine recently is, you know, at the end of all of this, through, through, regardless of what we do in this world, um, our participation in the universe comes down to only two things, right? We, we have to breathe in and take from the universe and we have to breathe out and, and give back to the universe. And it is important that we do both. There is a balance, right? And this, um, there, there can be a certain judgment about being selfish because I'm taking from the universe, but, 
but that's required, right? If we don't, if we don't breathe in, that means we're dead, right? We, we have to, to have that balance. And so as people are, are navigating difficult situations, I think, um, I think it might be helpful. Um, I have found it helpful to, to ask myself which one of those perhaps is lacking. Start there. Is, is one of those things lacking? Do I need something? Or perhaps do I need to, to let something go? Do I need to contribute? Do I need to give back and, and, and uh, focus outward versus inward? That's a good place for me to start. I think it, it has been um, helpful advice for some others. Uh, we don't have time as, as a community, right? And, and as individuals within those communities. And I think that's a, that's a, a very real component of this is, is we have to have time to think about, you know, again, going back to the, this football analogy, right? If you're hurt, but there's no subs, you got to keep going and keep going and keep going and you can't stop. And, and we have to stop like this, this requires time and deliberation that we don't have as a society. And that's a choice that quote unquote, we as a society have made. Um, our society has, has determined that that's not of value. I regularly have to remind myself, I, I regularly know how fortunate I am in this society to be who I am because I get to be afforded time that so many other people don't. My guest has been Jacob Dalkey, a clinical ethicist and the director of the Office of Healthcare Ethics at Nebraska Medicine. Jacob, thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. Lives is hosted and produced by me, Stuart Chittenden, and brought to you by KIOS, Omaha Public Radio. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. In the coming weeks, you will hear conversations with, among others, Scott Jones, Senior Minister for First Central Congregational Church in Omaha, Jay Leiter, an Associate Professor of Communication Studies and Director of the Sustainability Studies Program at Creighton University, and musician Edem Garo who performs as the musical artist at M. Soul Music. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.